All right, before we get started, sometimes we make qualifications on things, and uh, we all come from a uh, from usually diverse backgrounds, and so I just wanted to make sure we were all on the same page in the catechism. Holy, Ca- Holy Catholic Church is not the Roman Catholic Church, so just so we are reminded, Catholic means universal, so... Just want to just want people to know we're being orthodox here, and uh, and biblical. So that that does matter to me. So I don't want to don't want us to be reading things that are going to accuse our con- our conscience later. Um, so anyway, uh, with that in mind, let's uh, begin our time in the Word with the word of prayer, and prepare our hearts together. Let's bow our heads. Heavenly Father, thank you again for your great love for us. We ask that you would. Open our hearts, humble them, Lord, open our minds, uh, knowing that as your people we have the mind of Christ and that we are to receive and rejoice over everything that he speaks. We are here to not to hear the, the words of man, but the words of the Son of Man, that we may love him and worship him and obey him with joyful hearts. Uh, May that gladness be ours together today, Lord. We thank you uh, for your constant provision, even knowing that uh, by your will, this is our final Lord's Day here. Thank you for uh, multiplying us and for uh, gathering a a people here to proclaim your word and to prepare itself for the work of the gospel, knowing that victory is assured. Uh, We commit this time to you, Lord, with hearts full of faith and with joy. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, guys, go ahead and open your Bibles with me to 1 Peter chapter 3. We will continue where we left off in our text. We've been going through a, a mini-series, and uh, the book of 1 Peter is full of them, lots of mini-series uh, that we can use to concentrate on a particularly profound chunk of text that is uh, used to really sharpen us and to get us thinking more deeply about things that are pertinent to the Christian life, especially as it comes to defending the faith. So our text is chapter 3, verse 13 through 17. So please follow along as I read. Who is there to harm you if you prove zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed. And do not fear their intimidation and do not be troubled. But sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. And keep a good conscience so that in the thing in which you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ will be put to shame." May God be blessed by the reading of his word. So the theme we have been exploring in this uh, text is called unassailable hope in the midst of unavoidable suffering. Recognizing two things right off the bat by that title is that suffering is an inevitability. Anyone who desires to follow the Lord Jesus Christ by faith and in the power of the Holy Spirit will get blowback, will suffer rejection, will be persecuted on one level or the other. But accompanying that comes a guarantee, comes a promise, a great provision for the Christian, and that is hope. Not any kind of hope, not just a fool's hope, not just wishful thinking. An unassailable hope, ultimately 
an invincible hope, one which witnesses and anticipates the goodness and promises of God coming to pass in Christ. Such a hope is the only hope that can prevail through such suffering and through such rejection. And yet that is a hope that is given to us, supplied abundantly by our Father through Christ and is kept there by the Holy Spirit. So we are reminded that this is not in our power. This hope is not within the scope of human strength or wisdom. It is given and it is upheld. It is supported by the Holy Spirit. It is all a work of God. So we have found in this text a total of what we could call five characteristics of unassailable hope in the midst of unavoidable suffering. What, is, what, are, what are the things, what are the characteristics of this hope? What does it tell us about itself? And as, you know, to remind you, this is not the first time Peter has mentioned hope in this book. It is a prevailing theme throughout it, and so it pays to pay attention very carefully to it. So here's the first one, and we see this in the first verse, is that unassailable hope pursues that which is good in the midst of suffering. So hope isn't something that gets paralyzed under the weight of persecution and rejection. There is something about hope that spurs us on to love and good works. This is really the encouragement that we see of God's people throughout not only the New Testament, but also the Old. The fact is, is that God's people are so full of hope, they get busy. They pursue and perform that which is good as God supplies the strength and will to even do so. If you look at verse 13, who is there to harm you if you prove zealous for what is good? See, we are to be active. We are to be passionate about what is good. We are to excel in what is good. It is our constant preoccupation and objective to do that which is good in the sight of God, even though we suffer. There is something encouraging about always having good to do, even though we are opposed by unbelief. And here's the next one. You look at verse 14. It is this, unassailable hope produces perseverance in suffering. He says, even if you should suffer, verse 14, for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed and do not fear their intimidation, and do not be troubled. Don't be shaken. Don't let opposition and persecution stymie your pursuit of what is good. Do not let it produce fear so that you do not persevere. Remember, Christians are not called to circumvent suffering. We persevere through it. We don't always seek to avoid it, even though we don't go looking for it headlong but we recognize that it is going to be inevitable, and so we are called to endure it for the sake of righteousness and understand that God's blessing is upon us, and we'll talk more about that this morning. Thirdly, and I think central to this text, this is really the, the focal point, the central theme, it is this, unassailable hope proclaims Christ in suffering. Okay, look at verse 15. So he's saying, uh, do not do this, do not fear, but on the other hand, do this. Sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you. We call this the keystone verse of Christian apologetics, not simply defending the faith, but rather defending the hope. And how we understand this text is that 
our starting point when it comes to giving an account for the hope that is in us is to honor Christ in such a way to that we understand that he is Lord. Remember, we are revering him as Lord and as holy. And our Old Testament authority for this was found back in Isaiah chapter 8, where the Lord constantly reminds and encourages this remnant to remember that he is the Lord and that he is holy, to regard him as holy. That is, understand, regard me as, as a God who dwells with his people and is devoted to his own glory and to them. Remember, we talk about holiness. We have to understand it, especially in the context of God's presence, right? It's not his absence or just his separation or uniqueness. When we, when we are God's holy people, the first thing we are affirming with all confidence and joy is that we are a people who dwell with God. We do life with God. We are sustained by God and all of his presence and favor abides with his people. Now remember, in the, in the context of this, chapter 3 especially, we are in the theme of submission, Remember, submission, we call that the footing of true grace. Submission refers to the manner in which we stand. And think about how that applies to apologetics. We have a real footing. And that submission is reflected in how you revere Christ as Yahweh and as the Holy One. That is the ultimate expression of submission. Remember, if you believe in the midst of persecution and affliction that God is with you and that Jesus is Lord, he is both Lord and Savior and dwells with his people, that is the ultimate act of humility. It refuses to take matters into its own hands. It refuses to unjustly retaliate. It refuses to return evil for evil. Why? Because its footing is in Christ's lordship and Christ's presence with his people. So whom shall you fear? You, re you rely on his power. You affirm the fact that vengeance is mine, says the Lord. You submit to him and rely on him to strengthen you and vindicate you and give you all resources to endure. See, if Christ is the ultimate foundation for salvation, your ultimate footing is going to be his presence with you. See, so we know how to respond to those who afflict us. We respond with the hope that is Jesus Christ himself. It's not just a concept, it's a person. Jesus dwells in us and with us. He is our blessed hope. Everything we have is from him. All of the promises pertaining to salvation, every guarantee, every good thing here and in the future. It's where we landed last week. So important to understand this. That is our footing um, brother asked me today, actually just before service, I thought it was a great question and lends itself to understanding our text. Because we've been talking about presuppositional apologetics in our uh, Sunday school with Jeremy. And so the question that I was asked was, have, have I ever seen presuppositional apologetics actually lead to the salvation of someone where, where you defend the faith in a manner that begins and ends with Christ's authority, with Christ's lordship? So that's our starting point as defenders of the faith. Jesus is Lord and Jesus is holy, right? And I said, absolutely. And here's the reason why. is because presuppositional apologetics necessarily implies the preaching of the gospel. 
If we're standing on the authority of scripture and the lordship of Christ and his presence with us, if that is our starting point, it will inevitably lead to the good news because this kind of apologetic stands on the authority of scripture. It assumes the authority of scripture. It assumes that Jesus is Lord. It assumes that Jesus is savior. And it assumes that Jesus is present with his people. That's our starting point and we never deviate from it. So the starting point of presuppositional apologetics is the gospel and its end point is also the gospel. The fact that we presuppose it keeps us from those interactions, especially when we're giving an account for the hope that's within us. It keeps us from dancing around the issue. We're able to get right to the main issue. And it is this, Jesus is Lord. Jesus is present with me. And in all of Christ's accomplishments in his death and resurrection, his ascension and his current rule at the right hand of God, is every necessary precondition for my worldview. Everything I view about reality and all the hope that is within me is viewed through that lens, that Jesus is Lord of all and that he is the Holy One of God, the God that dwells forever with his people. So look at the text again. After this, it says, so this answers, it answers the question of, of, of how we're supposed to respond, but it does so knowing that Jesus is doing something. He's not just Lord, but he is also present. And then following on that is a manner in which we are to respond. We don't respond with brute force, as it were. There is a particular attitude that is to accompany that good confession. And that leads me to number four unassailable hope prepares its heart in suffering, prepares its heart. And this is really good. We we talk about being ready, right? Being ready. And there's a connection there to understanding Christ as holy. And this really harkens back to what we know of God's people in the Old Testament. Because God's holy presence was coming to dwell with his people, what were his people to do? To consecrate themselves, to prepare themselves. So a similar thing is in view. We are to prepare ourselves and to prepare ourselves to answer in a particular fashion. So look what verse 15 says. It says to make a defense, be ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is within you. Yet, yet with gentleness and reverence. I mean, we are wielding the gospel of God, right? The power of God and the salvation for everyone who believes. This is a message that brings life to dead men. And yet a passage like this prevents us from becoming arrogant or self-sufficient. Yes, we preach the power of God, but with gentleness and reverence. And that is what we want to prepare our heart by. That's what we want to cultivate the heart with so that those characteristics are evident and at the ready so we do not snap back so that we are not brutal and unkind and ungracious, but with gentleness and reverence. I think two things today that are becoming increasingly unique to Christian communication. We all throw around this phrase, we call it the marketplace of ideas, right? We, we enter this this arena where we are presumably 
free to present what we believe is true, present our worldview, present our philosophy, present the way we see it. And so when the Christian goes into the marketplace ideas of ideas, we present the way that God sees it. We present the Christian worldview and the gospel and all that accompanies with it. But it is becoming increasingly more evident that in the marketplace ideas of ideas, if you want to prevail in an argument, you simply talk louder. You raise your voice to get your point across, especially against someone whose ideas and doctrines and dogmas you really can't stand. It seems that yelling is the fail-safe. If you really don't like what they say, you just shout and scream them down. And then you've won the argument. And of course, in this, the content of fair dialogue is lost beneath the screaming and the yelling. And I say, most of us, if we haven't already, will face this. You'll, you'll, you'll know that person and, and you'll have occasion to proclaim Christ to them and it will be met with great consternation, with the raising of the voice, with a strong rejection, often even with cursing to express their disappointment and anger at you for believing such ridiculous things. And that is the way of the world today and we are not to fall prey to that. You know, we think of... Uh, Stephen, before he was stoned and he was issuing a very strong rebuke at those who rejected Christ and were rejecting the gospel. And although, although his speech was very strong, it was done with great care, with great reverence. And what did they do? They gnashed their teeth at him, right? And then they took him out of the city and killed him by throwing rocks at him. Now, we understand throwing rocks more in the metaphorical sense today, but back then it could really get you hurt, even killed. Okay. But, the, but, but nothing, nothing is new in that sense. There are always those who, who gnash their teeth against the truth of God, who put to death those who represent Him. And so we have to prepare ourselves that we do not act in such a manner. We are not called to overpower our inquisitors with a manner and tone that is biting and aggressive and fights fire with fire in that manner. See, we have confidence enough in Christ. Our hope is grounded. We just found that out. Our hope is grounded and secure enough. We don't need to yell. We don't need to shout. The only time we're really shouting is if we're preaching on a street corner and calling out to people, kind of like how I'm calling out to you right now, but I'm not screaming at you. It's not necessary. The word of God is sufficient and powerful to do its work, right? And so we present it with boldness, with confidence, and yet with gentleness. We are to be honest, unassuming, humble, clear, and to the point, pleading with the individual to be reconciled to God through faith in Christ. Yes, we love our enemies. We desire their salvation, even to the atheist who aggressively campaigns against Christianity in the public and legislative square, and even to the Muslim who screams death to the infidel. They are all the mission field, and to all of them we have an answer. And our hearts are prepared with gentleness and reverence to preach Christ to them. We're not these frothing-at-the-mouth theocratic zealots that we're accused of being, right? Yeah, sure, we're theocratic. We are advancing God's kingdom through the proclamation of the gospel, but not in a way that is brutal and shows no concern, no personal concern for their soul, no personal concern that they are at odds with the God who dwells with us. 
And this, is, this, this can take great time and great, great discipline, great exposure to that rejection and persecution to finally understand it. We may sit there, oh yeah, I love my enemies in theory, but you get out there and start proclaiming Christ, start exposing the darkness, and, and, and the enemies of the gospel do not appreciate that. And they will say all kinds of things with their fingers and their tongue to try to discourage you, to try to mount an opposition against the truth that we proclaim. And yet, we are commanded to do this, to counter that, to preach Christ, to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is within you with great gentleness and reverence. So yes, in this, way, in this, in this context, what we say is as important as how we say it. I think something's wrong with my mic but we'll continue. <laughs> so if you're with me, go back to Isaiah chapter 8. We've been kind of camping here as our complimentary Old Testament text. All right, back to Isaiah chapter 8. It's talking to the believing remnant from Judah, and remember they're facing a military onslaught from Israel and some surrounding pagan nation, and Isaiah tries to encourage them thusly. He says, verse 9, be broken, O peoples, and be shattered, and give ear all remote places of the earth. Gird yourselves, yet be shattered. Gird yourselves, yet be shattered. Devise a plan, but it will be thwarted. State a proposal, but it will not stand. For God is with us. Remember that? That's your hope. God is with you. That's the main thrust of that prophecy, okay? Verse 11, for thus the Lord spoke to me with mighty power and instructed me not to walk in the way of this people saying, you are not to say it is a conspiracy in regard to all that this people call a conspiracy and you are not to fear what they fear and be of, in dread of it, right? So first Peter says that, do not fear their intimidation. And it says this, it is the Lord of hosts whom you should regard as holy and he shall be your fear and he shall be your dread. So we, so we, listen, we listen to First Peter, it says, do not fear their intimidation. Here expresses a fear in two ways. He shall be your fear, and he shall be your dread. So that's what re the word reverence actually means. It just means fear. As we've described before, fear means more than simply awe, respect, or reverence. Fear means fear. Yes, to, to be a to be afraid, but this is a godly fear. This is what we could call a holy dread. So you see that word there in verse 13, it says, and he shall be your dread. Dread means to tremble, right? We know that fear can often express itself physically, can manifest itself physically. So we have fear, sort of that, that, that inner dread, right? A, a feeling of nervousness, a feeling that, you know, maybe we're being watched or something can destroy us. Doing a great job, Brian. <laughs> but then of course that can manifest itself Physically, you dread into the, to the point where you tremble. So Peter says, do not fear, do not be disturbed. Don't fear their fear. Don't be afraid of them. Don't be, of the same, don't be afraid of the same things they are afraid of. I mean, think about that. That's our attitude. And when, when those who try to afflict you and intimidate you come against you and oppose the gospel and, and bring about strong persecution, what are they trying to do? They're trying to instill fear in you. Fear, thank you. You are a gentleman and a scholar, Brian. I'm glad that went so well. All right. 
They're trying to instill fear in you. And that's what Peter says. No, rather than being afraid of them, rather being intimidated by them, he shall be your fear, he shall be your dread. And he reminds them of that when he says, with gentleness and fear. Remember that the Lord is your fear. He is your dread. He is holy. Remember that. Have that holy fear of God. Now remember, this, can, this, this whole thing of back in verse 14, do not fear their intimidation, do not be troubled, do not fear their fear. Literally it means, or it can mean, do not, do not fear the things that they're afraid of, or it could mean, do not be afraid of them. And I think, I think all of those things can come, into, can come into play. Because if you buckle to fear, you will. You will start being afraid of the same things that the unbelieving world is afraid of. Or you'll simply fear them. But I think the, the, this both, the, both of these apply in this situation. I think the main thrust is to not be afraid of them, since its Old Testament reference is about uh, enemies coming from outside to overthrow and attack Judah. But here's the thing. When it comes to fear, it, it, when, we, when, we, when we fall to that temptation, we start being afraid of the same things that the world is afraid of. What, is that, what does that look like? What is, what, what's, the, what's the end goal of this kind of intimidation? I think this is very key to understand because we can guard ourselves against it. I think it is this. We say, what is the world afraid of ultimately? I believe it's this, especially, especially in the context of this verse when we, when we proclaim Christ as Lord and as holy. The fear that they are trying to get you to buckle to is this. It's fear of a world in which you cannot live on your own terms. Fear of a world in which you cannot proclaim yourself to be Lord. Right? Because that's what they're doing here is that they are ultimately rejecting the presence of Christ. They are rejecting his right to rule. They are rejecting his lordship. And in order to do that, their intimidation will be such so that you no longer fear God. And that's why Peter reminds them here. That's why Isaiah reminds Judah, look, the Lord is your fear. He is your dread. He is the one who is causing you to tremble. And that's why we understand true godly fear to be a fear that clings. Because ultimately, the, the real dread of the Christian should be a world in which Christ does not reign. A world in which Christ is not Savior. A world in which Christ does not dwell with his people, that this God doesn't exist. See, it's the same temptation that the nation of Israel faced again and again, is, is enduring things to the point where they, said, they accused God of not being holy, where they basically said, God, you are not with us. We are going through this, therefore you are not with us. And that is the pitfall of many who proclaim Christ. They, they, they become a fair weather friend, as it were. So that when we real suffering and loss and persecution come on whatever front, that is where they go to if they do not cling to the Lord, if they do not fear Him. They accuse Him of having abandoned Him. They accuse Him of not being holy. They accuse Him of being against them. And if we know that God is with us and for us, who can be against us? But that's the temptation that is here in persecution, is to live as the world does. And this is, again, this is a huge paradigm shift in what should entail fear in the believer's life. We go from fearing God to being afraid of the same things that the world is afraid of. That is a world in which they cannot live on their own terms, a world in which they cannot 
claim themselves to be Lord. And that is why preparing the heart for suffering, for persecution is so important because we are reminded that it is God who we fear and in that fear we cling to him. And we do so with gentleness, that is humility, meekness. I think when, when that characteristic is, is, is in play, we do keep ourselves from becoming arrogant in our proclamation when we proclaim Christ to the unbeliever. There should be something in you every time you proclaim the gospel. Yes, this, this humble plea that you are, are, are you, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade men, Paul says, right? We've understood, based on the illumination of the Holy Spirit, that apart from the grace of Christ, we would be exactly where that person is to whom we are preaching the gospel. We'd be where they are right now, if not for the grace of God. That should cause great humility, that apart from the power of God, there is nothing that we can do. I think that's why we have to understand simultaneously, yeah, that we can't just intellectualize them, we can't just simply reason them into the kingdom of heaven. The power of God must come to bear and grant them life and understanding, which goes back to our original argument that when it comes to apologetics, we simply need to start with standing firm on the truth of God's word. There is no neutrality. Our assumption, our tru- uh, uh, the truth that is revealed to us is that Jesus is Lord and that he is present with us and that as his people, we proclaim him with gentleness and reverence and a desire to see them come to faith in Christ. I think uh, Martin Luther gives us good advice when it comes to this. He says this, Then must ye not answer with proud words and bring out the matter with a defiance and with violence as if ye would tear up trees. I mean, (laughs) the imagery there is glorious and profound. As if we would tear up trees. But there's just some great consternation and anger that we have when we go and and preach Christ. Like we're just going to throw down, right? In such a way to where people are going to scatter in fear. But I think... I think Herr Luther's uh, advice here is very wise. Do not answer with proud words, right? I think, I think one thing we understand with proud words is that you kind of make it about you, right? When we preach the gospel, it's not about us. It's about the Lord Jesus Christ. Don't act as if we came by this great salvation because we were somehow wiser and more insightful or better listeners. No, it was completely dependent on the power of God. That is to bring it in a humble manner. And again, not with a defiance and with violence. Do so though with fear, he says, but with such fear and lowliness as if ye stood before God's tribunal. And I love this point because what does that understand? Is that when you proclaim Christ, you understand that Christ is with you when you are proclaiming him. You are really, he says, act as if you stood before God's tribunal. We don't have to act that way because we know that when we proclaim Christ, we are before God's tribunal. He's with us, and it reminds us not to rest in our own strength, but as Luther concludes, but on the word and promise of Christ. So let's go on to verse 16. He says this, And keep a good conscience, so that in the thing in which you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ will be put to shame. Okay, Will be put to shame. So here's the fifth one and final one is that unassailable hope protects the conscience 
in suffering. And this goes along with what he just mentioned. I think proclaiming Christ with gentleness and with reverence permits us to keep a good conscience. We do not want our pride and ungodly aggression with the gospel to be accusing us. I mean, that's what the conscience is. To borrow from a Another definition, conscience can be understood as the divinely placed mechanism that either accuses or excuses a person. Let me read that again. The conscience can be defined as the divinely placed mechanism that either accuses or excuses a person. So we don't understand conscience as the voice of God. It actually comes from a word that means literally with science, with knowledge. But as image bearers, we are created with the conscience so that we do have a general sense of right and wrong. Yes, the conscience does allow us to evaluate the moral quality of our own thoughts and actions. We think of it as, uh, you know, what's our, what's our favorite light in our car? The check engine light, right? Something's wrong. And we can drive around our ca- in our cars for thousands of miles just ignoring that check engine light. Something's going to break. Something's going to overheat. Something's going to cost you this entire car if you don't pay attention to the light, if you don't check your engine. The way we understand conscience as well is in chapter 1 in the book of Romans and into chapter 2 where Paul is describing the unbelieving Gentiles that even though not having the law, they assess things through their conscience. By some measure, they have this innate ability to know the difference between what is right and wrong. They even have a seemingly innate ability, however limited, to judge things according to the revealed law of God. Because as Paul will say, that the Gentiles can observe certain wicked things that men do, and and they know instinctively that those who practice those things are worthy of death, right? So there is a lot of light. I mean, in another sense, the conscience sort of acts like a skylight. It does not produce its own light, but it simply lets light through. Now, the problem with the conscience, even more so than trying to define it and understand it perfectly, is that as time goes on in unbelief, the conscience becomes more muzzled. The skylight gets smaller and smaller, more dim, more clouded, and our ability to judge right from wrong gets much more convoluted. Our conscience will often come to operate in union with how we view arbitrarily what is right and what is wrong. Remember, as long as we go on in unbelief, we become a law unto ourselves. We become a Lord unto ourselves. And so our conscience will often be affected consistently with how we view our own godness, right? How we view ourselves as the authority. So conscience can be bent. It can be polluted. The conscience is not the be-all and end-all of assessing what is right and wrong. And we would say, too, that the only solution to a clear conscience is the blood of Christ, And according to Hebrews 9.14 and 10.22, our conscience by faith in Christ becomes cleansed. And so even though the conscience is not the same as the voice of God or even the words of Scripture, when a man is born again, his conscience can operate in unison and under the authority of divine truth and the power of the Holy Spirit and act accordingly. See, the conscience now can be informed. It can accuse you or excuse you based on God's revealed word. 
And we are exhorted again and again in Scripture to maintain a conscience that is clear and blameless and undefiled. And I think what this refers to is a life that is lived with personal integrity in the power of God. Even the Apostle Paul says, I always do my best to maintain a blameless conscience before God and before men. When, you, when he went out and preached the gospel, he didn't want his conscience to be accusing him. I mean, it's so much harder to minister to the church on any level if your conscience is constantly accusing you. But it is the gospel that brings cleansing to it. And so when it comes to persecution, just like ministry itself, the believer is much more effective at enduring persecution when his conscience is clear. Because what happens if you're not walking with the Lord, you're not walking consistently with his word and his conscience is accusing you, and then the enemy comes along and starts accusing you, guess what you're going to do? You're going to start agreeing with him. Oh man, yeah. Yeah, that's a good point. You don't don't want your conscience to accuse you when persecution comes. You want to be like the Apostle Paul to keep a blameless conscience before God and before man so that when we are accused, we can say with all truth that no, we have walked with God. We have conducted ourselves faithfully for the sake of righteousness. So we say, well, how can we keep a good conscience? Let me give you a few things here. How, how do we maintain or keep a clear conscience? Because I believe this is very important, especially as persecution mounts in our own country. Here's the first one, and these are pretty obvious. When it comes to maintaining a clear conscience, first, start thinking. Start thinking. Virtually any act of sin can be traced back to the way you think, the way you reckon and evaluate things. If you obsess about sin, if you obsess about opportunities and fall to temptation long enough, the conscience will begin to allow it. So start thinking. Think matters through. Don't follow your heart. Don't go with your gut. Don't shoot from the hip. Don't spitball. Think, (laughs) right? Remember, we have the mind of Christ. We can think God's thoughts after him. We can think in alignment with him. We can see the world as he does. Here's the second one. I think this is important as well. Start thinking. Secondly, this one's going to blow you away. Stop sinning. Stop sinning. What's my authority for that? 1 Corinthians 15.34, Paul says this, Become sober-minded as you ought, and stop sinning, for some have no knowledge of God. I speak this to your shame. Boy, it's just like Peter reminded us earlier on in this book. You know, don't, don't use your freedom as a covering for evil. Sometimes we mistakenly think because we've stopped thinking that somehow life in Christ is this free for all. Hey, we're cleansed. God will forgive me anyway. I can do what I want. No, start thinking, stop sinning. It is against your new nature in Christ to sin. When you sin, it is inconsistent. I know we get into this habit where we can say, oh, it's well, sinning is sinning's totally natural. No, it's not. Not to you. It's not nature. It's not second nature. It is an anomaly for those who are in Christ. It is natural or supernatural, I should say, to live in the power of the Spirit and to walk with God and to do righteously. You have been cleansed from all unrighteousness, 1 John tells us. Do not go on living in such a way as to deny that reality. Listen to Proverbs 28, 13. He who conceals his transgression will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will find compassion. And we live in that compassion, the very compassion of God as his people. But do not conceal sin. Do not hide it. 
We keep reminding you guys what we need to, this is where the church comes in, the body of Christ, where we walk with each other. So if the foot becomes gimpy, the arm can bandage it up. Stop sinning. Here's another one. Learn from examples and warnings. Paul references those who suffer shipwreck in their faith as having their consciences seared with a hot iron. Seared, full, you know, well done. We want to learn from the examples of those who go that direction, that their fall is profound and tragic and not meant to be followed in. And conversely, when it comes to examples, bear witness to those who have kept a good conscience and the blessings reaped by it. Here's a fourth one. Grow up. That includes me. That includes you. Grow up. Mature in the faith, right? Always be maturing. Always be growing. We call this semper reformanda, always reforming, right? We're always refining our doctrine, always inquiring of scripture, always studying the word and the truths contained therein, walking with God, knowing Christ, loving him more, you know, constantly watering, 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 and then growing and bearing fruit. Always be bearing fruit. Always be strengthening yourselves by constant exposure to the truth of God's word, to be saturated with it. See, growth in the knowledge of Jesus Christ, which we will read about in 2 Peter, makes our consciences more attuned to divine truth. It actually makes us hate sin more. It gives us a ready defense against temptation. See, always grow up and be maturing, friends. We're actually warned about this from Hebrews 5.12. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, writing to the Jewish believers, you have need again for someone to teach you the elementary principles of the oracles of God, and you have come to need milk and not solid food. I mean, this is sad. I don't want us all turning 70 and we're like, oh, remind me of that old, old story again. Remember, what was it? Were the, the, the basics, right? Like, how did I come to be a Christian? Like, you know, those, those are things that are meant to constantly refresh us, right? They're, they're water to the face. They're, wa- they're, they're water to the soul. But we are always meant to, to use that as a foundation to progress in the knowledge of the Word of God, de- to develop a, a depth of theology, right? And while we're always refreshing ourselves with, with the elementary things, the basic things, right? We are always meant to, we're always called to develop our theology, to know, to know God more, and to pass those things down. I think we have a tragic absence, absence in the church today of teachers, especially of old men who can be teachers, man. The old men, the old women are meant to teach and disciple the younger, and, and there is this in some places, it's a desert where you find that those who should be mature in Christ, who should be glowing, right? Glowing with godliness. And they don't, and they don't know anything because they haven't been in the word. And so they, they're not equipped to teach. And that is a, I mean, I, I remind you now, especially you young, you young men out there. I'm looking at all of you, all you young men out there. Start now developing a thirst and knowledge for the word so that when the time comes, you can be a trustworthy and faithful teacher of God's word to others and to know how to handle it accurately. You know, if you don't know how to, you don't know how to handle a sword accurately, you're going to stab somebody, maybe even yourself. Know how to handle God's word. So start thinking, stop sinning, learn from examples and warnings, and grow up. And then listen to this. 
so that in the thing in which you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ will be put to shame. So there's a purpose to all of this. The thing in which you are slandered, what is this thing? What is this thing in which Christians are being misrepresented? That's what slander means, evil speaking, misrepresentation. You are lying about a person, calling evil good and good evil, right? I think this thing really goes back to our starting point, the fact that we sanctify Christ as Lord, the fact that we are giving an account for this hope, even the very gentleness and reverence, all are being written off as evil things, right? We've seen that, we see this back here in the scriptures, we see it even today, that no matter how good and hope-filled and joyous the gospel is, no matter how gentle and humble and caring we are, it may be slandered as evil. See, the good we know, the good that we do, the good we stand for, our entire, our entire worldview can be slandered, written off as evil. But the end is clear, as Peter says. That thing in which you are slandered, the greatest thing of all, that is proclaiming Christ, written off as evil, it says those who revile your good behavior in Christ will be put to shame. I think we're, I mean, we're, leave, we're living through the thick of this, right? The, the best things, the things that we hold most dear, th- those things that we treasure, those, those gospel truths are being written off as evil. They're being written off even in some places as worthy of death. And this goes back to our marketplace of ideas. What we believe in some places is viewed as so wicked, as so evil and reprehensible, it's not even worthy of a hearing. It's just, you guys, you sit down, you shut up, you don't understand. It's your turn to listen. And yet I would say that's the very problem of humanity, is it doesn't want to listen to God. And so, as is proper to the believer, we must take a stand on the truth of God's word and make them answer, to confront them with the reality of Christ's lordship and his holy presence and his holy name. And we are living in a time, I believe, a moral climate of such where if something is deemed as evil, even those who deem the thing as evil have a license to lie and slander and steal because the evil must be destroyed at all costs. So it's fair game. See, this is what happens when at least they're consistent, right? As soon as you do away with God, as soon as you reject the Lordship of Christ, it is a moral free-for-all because you have no basis for understanding what is good and understanding what is not good. So that's where we are. It has been said, though the quote cannot be um, firmly uh, ascribed to anyone, it says, when the debate is lost, slander becomes the tool of the loser. I think that's what we're facing now. Just ad hominem. Just attack them. Don't attack the substance of what they're saying. Don't interact with what has been presented. Just attack the person saying it as wicked and evil and, and worthy of rejection. But look what it says. Here's the outcome. Those who revile your good behavior in Christ will be put to shame. I don't think this is saying we should go out looking for ways to humiliate unbelievers. This is simply the natural outcome of walking with God, of humbly proclaiming the truth and making Christ as holy and Lord your starting point. Those who revile your good behavior, those who sneer at it in disgust, those who slander and misrepresent it and write it off, Those who do that to your good behavior in Christ will be put to shame. Note this behavior in Christ. Once again, Peter is is keeping us from assessing the good on our own terms. What good? Good in Christ. 
That is the good that we do in his name, the good that we do to his glory, the good that we do in order to advance his kingdom. Those things in Christ will be put to shame. And of course, the shame refers to being embarrassed. It can refer to even blushing, to suffer loss and humiliation. See, what the, the very thing they are trying to do will befall them. Look at this word, shame. This word shame is in the Greek translation of the Old Testament called the Septuagint. It's the same word that describes the nakedness of Adam and Eve. Right? They were naked and were not ashamed. So here, there's an ironic twist to it. What they believe is laid bare. It is naked before God. It is naked before all of heaven and earth. And they are ashamed. And we would say, well, where is this shame now? Well, it doesn't say that it's going to come immediately. But it will come eventually. This great, profound suffering of loss. And I know, and I know shame isn't popular. You know, it's, very, it's not very in vogue lately to say shame on you. You know, sometimes we say to our kids, we have to kind of, usher them away from everyone. Hey, you, shame on you. How could you do that? <laughs> shame is not a popular thing. It's, it's, seen as, it's seen as something that is not, it's, it's not good parenting, right? You never shame anyone, right? But the fact is, is there are things that are worthy of shame. There are things we should be ashamed of, right? We shouldn't be proud of sin. We shouldn't be proud of uh, uh, those times when we fail to be faithful to God, when we take an easy opportunity and fall prey to temptation, those aren't things we should be proud of. They do bring shame. And so sometimes it's, it's appropriate. So they're shaming us. That, that, is, that is a tactic even now. You shame someone publicly. If they don't like what, they don't like what we're saying, we are, we are called to the forefront. What we are said is, is publicly denigrated and put down. And for some of you, that may, be, that may mean being put in Facebook jail for a time, right? Oh, heaven help us. What are we going to do? right? But in the end, those who do not embrace Christ will feel shame and will feel humiliation. Shame for not listening to the good news. Shame for not heeding the warnings. Shame for accusing believers in Christ of being a liar when they, when they find out all too late that everything we were telling them was absolutely true. Shame for standing condemned and losing their soul. And in the grand scheme of things, the realization will hit that God is real, that Jesus Christ is Lord and holy. And even on a smaller scale, the unbeliever will feel the shame of knowing those things of which he accused believers of were completely unfounded. So I would say live in such a way that the unbeliever will be wrong, right? Don't by your hypocrisy lead them to hell, right? Walk with God with integrity and, and with humility and in truth. Think about how the gospel is written off today, even the very Christian worldview of being hateful, of being intolerant, of being superstitious. The shame will come inevitably that the gospel was the most loving thing that could ever be preached to them, right? That's going to be a profound realization. The realization and shame that the gospel was not actually intolerant, but it was intolerant of all the lies that were being proclaimed. That God was in fact tolerant with sinners, giving them time to come to repentance. That the gospel was not superstitious, but by believing it, we actually become enlightened by the Holy Spirit and we see things the way God sees them and as they truly are. 
See, when we proclaim Christ, we are warning unbelievers, among other things, not to be haunted by this realization, but to come to the saving knowledge of the truth now and to revere Christ as Lord and holy and to worship Him. That's what we desire for them, and that's why we keep proclaiming the truth. And so we endure suffering to that end. And that's where Peter finishes this text. He says, For it is better, if God should will it so, that you should suffer for doing what is right rather than for doing what is wrong. And we would connect this better with uh, verse 14, right? Suffering for the sake of righteousness. So we'll just conclude there. It's better, see, if God should will it so. That should strike us as interesting, that God sometimes wills us to suffer. And this, of course, shatters a big lie that somehow suffering and affliction, especially of the severe and prolonged kind, means that God is against us, means that God is displeased with us, meaning means that we have sinned against him somehow, right? And it does not necessarily mean that at all. It means, in fact, that we are blessed going back to verse 14. But he says it's better. God may will for you to suffer, but that you suffer for doing what is right rather than doing what is wrong. Remember Peter earlier tells us this, he exhorts his people and he says, what, what benefit is it? What does it profit you if like the unbeliever, you just do what is evil, right? You take matters into your own hands. Maybe, maybe that's expressed in retaliation, right? Or, or some kind of social rebellion or insurrection. What does it profit you? What does it profit your witness, especially if you suffer for doing what is evil? It is better than to suffer for what is good and knowing that the Lord has it all planned out and if that he wills for you to suffer, you will suffer. But even in that suffering, he is purifying you. He is strengthening your faith. He is making you more like Christ. So when it comes to that suffering, remember a few things. I'll go through these quickly. When it comes to suffering for what is good, right? Trust in God's sovereign timing for it, okay? We know this. God is in control, control of even the timing of our suffering. He's not off the mark. He hasn't turned around. He's not blind to your affliction, but he is in control over it. And that God is allowing this to come into our lives for our good, okay? So that's the first thing. Second thing, this suffering for righteousness sake shows us that we are committed to an obedient life. In a society where men call good evil and evil good, there is bound to be suffering for doing perhaps even the most basic good things. But the greatest evil, especially in Roman society, as time goes on, will be to claim that there is no Lord but, the, but Jesus Christ. We proclaim the same message today. There is bound to be opposition, and that is fundamentally um, the characteristic of an obedient life, is proclaiming no God but the Lord Jesus Christ. Thirdly is this, suffering for the sake of righteousness demonstrates that Jesus is more important than self-preservation, right? Even Jesus described his own life as, as a seed that falls to the ground. It dies, but what does it do? It brings life. And so just in the same manner as the Apostle Paul and even the Apostle of Peter, we reckon our lives as no account. We do not seek to preserve our lives at the expense of the gospel. Sure, we live, you know, we try to live, we try to leave, live healthy lives, not eat too many tacos or hamburgers. You know, we, yeah, exactly. What? What are you talking about? Heresy, right. But we try to, but we, we try to live, a, we take care of our body, if only for the reason of being able to faithfully preach the gospel. 
If we're bedridden, what are we going to be able to do? We're going to be laying around all day just, just trying to have enough strength to breathe. But no, we take care of ourselves. Physical, the physical body is good and is a gift from Him. But I mean in the sense of we, we, don't, we don't cower in fear because we know there will be consequences for being faithful. We don't look at self-preservation in that manner. I mean, that's what Peter did, right? He knows this even writing. He's probably reminded of it. Three times he denied knowing Jesus because he knew it would cost him. What was that done in the interest of? Self-preservation. Right. Self-preservation. And so if suffering is an opportunity to put Christ's glory and gospel on display, then so be it, right? That's what we're called to do. That is the will of God for us that we suffer for the gospel's sake and make him known to those who don't know him. And here's the fourth thing following that, okay? Fourthly, we demonstrate, suffering for righteousness, we demonstrate the power of God. I think this is something we can really understand through our experience. When we are in Christ and we are walking in step with the Holy Spirit, we are currently experiencing the power of God. But it is the power of God that stays our feet, that helps, that, 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 that preserves our footing in the midst of persecution and affliction. If not for the power of God, we would fade. If not for the power of God, we would retreat. If not for the power of God, we would probably stop preaching. We would stop proclaiming. We would stop reacting with grace and humility. We would look for a way to re retaliate. But it is the very power of God that enables us to be patient and bring no reproach to the cross in the midst of suffering and yet to continue to grow and to continue to be a faithful witness. I think we can all agree that it's better that way, right? It's better doing this God's way than our own way. It's better if he wills it so that we suffer for doing what is right rather than for doing what is wrong. And in this endurance, we leave this to the power of God. I remember... Um, if you guys have heard of the uh, abolitionist from, from, I think, gosh, it's been 20 years. His name was Paul Hill. You guys know about Paul Hill? Um, we hate abortion, right? We hate the murder of children. We despise it. And so we go and we stand against it. And we proclaim the gospel, right? We give them the hope of the gospel very, very clearly. But there was a, a man named Paul Hill. He was actually a preacher, I believe. And he took his rifle to an abortion center one day and murdered the doctor right? That's what we call suffering for evil. He took matters into his own hands instead of leaving justice to the hand of God. And he was actually later and justly executed for committing murder, for his maverick efforts against the evils of abortion. And yes, sometimes it's hard to know where to draw the line in certain things, but murder is not one of them. We do what is good and we proclaim the truth and leave it to the sovereign hand of God to work in the manner and timing in which he chooses. We are not spiritual mavericks, right? And we don't take matters into our own hands. So that's an example of suffering for unrighteous behavior. That was not Mr. Hill's life to take. And so we know that even in this, the Lord's discipline will continue to purify us as much as it is not pleasant. We know that it is God's way of making us more like his son, and that he is calling us to live consistently with all the grace that he has given us. Perfectly adequate. So in all these things, friends, this, these are the five characteristics. 
And we do have that unassailable hope, right? And this is how it, this is how it responds to suffering. So even as we see it mount, and I believe it will, it doesn't mean the end. It doesn't even mean the end is near. What it means for certain is an opportunity for the church to get off the bench and to stand firmly in God's word. Because here's what's happening. When, when, when evil prevails in any society, society crumbles. Any anti-God philosophy, any, any, anything that is anti-God will inherently and eventually crumble in on itself. And so when the world is crumbling, right, where are those who are offering hope? Are we hiding or are we standing free and clear as free men in Christ ready to offer the hope that is within us, right? So, that is, so, so it's more than simply standing here. It, it is a call to arms to be prepared to proclaim the hope that we have because outside of it, there is none. There is no hope. And so when that realization hits the unbeliever, whether it's one or several, we are ready. We cannot, hey, I have a hope. I have a hope that is unassailable, that is invincible, that is prepared in heaven for me, that will never fade away. And it starts with Christ. Let me tell you about Christ Jesus, the Lord, who dwells with his people and who is always faithful. There will be plenty of opportunity, friends. Don't you forget it, okay? And in the meantime, continue standing firm, be faithful, walk with God, and be ready, okay? Be ready. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, thank you again uh, for this great passage that we can be reminded to, to walk with you, to know you as Lord, to know you as holy, that you are with your people, that you are our fear and our dread. And Lord, help us, really help us if we ever entertain any thought of departing from the hope of the gospel. That should make us most afraid. Um, a world without you. And yet, we live in a world where your presence is abundant. It is with your people. And and becomes a greater reality as we proclaim your truth. Lord, this is not the time to retreat. This is not, this is not the time to think that everything is ending. No, the old, the old order is ending. That which rejects you, even though it mounts an initially impressive offensive, it will ultimately collapse. It will ultimately be on the defensive as we assault the very gates of hell and see men brought to a saving knowledge of your Son. Lord, help us to be prepared. We, we don't want to fear. We don't want to dread as the world does. We don't want to think that you are withdrawing your saving power or your very presence from this world, but in fact, it is increasing. Your kingdom is advancing, and we want to be a part of it. Lord, help us to think rightly about this, that uh, you aren't going anywhere and neither are we, and that we are meant to be strong and courageous, but strong and courageous in the power of your might as you sustain us and, and give us the very words of grace to speak to those who do not know you in the hopes that they will. Lord, we, yes, we, we hate to see your name disparaged. We hate to see your gospel rejected. We hate to see your authority undermined. Um, but Lord, we do want a heart for those who do not know you. We want to have compassion. We want to have the patience and all the, the reverence and gentleness, Lord, that you call us to. Uh, 
so that we can uh, clearly proclaim all the grace that is offered in the gospel. Um, so may this be a fruitful season, Lord. May this be a, an abundant harvest where we can be encouraged by seeing men come to you, seeing people repent of their sin and rebellion and place their faith in Christ and come under his lordship and authority to lay down their, their weapons of war and then take up the sword of the Spirit and to join the fight with us, Lord. We, and we anticipate by faith many good things in the days ahead that you will ultimately accomplish uh, that which you promised, and that is to bring all your enemies under your feet and uh, be ruler, Lord, of all the earth, uh, even as you are now, but we look to see that uh, expressed in full. And uh, knowing that it will come to pass, how can we then withdraw ourselves from the fray? Lord, embolden us and uh, refresh our hearts and help us to stand strong because we know that our footing in you is ultimately firm. In this we rejoice and in this we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.